The following is a Relevant Radio program and is protected under U.S. copyright laws. This program is made possible through the contributions of listeners like you. Support Relevant Radio by clicking on the Donate icon at RelevantRadio.com. The brightest show on air, live from Chicago, it's the Dan Cheely Show. Hailing from a blue-collar Italian neighborhood and working his way to Princeton and Harvard Law, Dan is a church historian and family man with a passion for truth, love, and a good glass of vino. Here he is, your host, Dan Cheely. Hello, everyone. Dan Sheely, I've got some fun and surprises today. You know, Tim, let's hear a little bit about that monastery music. Now, you might think that that is from someplace in France or someplace on the continent, but I think it's recorded from right here in Chicago. I have with me right in front of me Father Peter Funk, who is the prior of the Monastery of the Holy Cross, an urban monastery here in the big city, the Windy City. Father Peter, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Well, normally when I think of a monastery, I think of getting away from it all. Like historically, you know, Benedictine monasteries are located in isolated places to keep the world out. Subiaco, Monte Cassino, Cito. Your monastery is smack dab in the great south side of Chicago, not too far from White Sox Park. Now, mm-hmm. How in the world did your monastery get there? How did it get started? Yeah, well, uh, I would say, first of all, that monasteries usually exist in tension with uh, the world around them. And so we withdraw, but we also engage. And so our founders, uh, when they were looking to start a monastery, they were interested in being in the city. And uh, they found out there were churches closed in Chicago in 1990, and they contacted Cardinal Bernadine, and he said, sure, uh, come and settle here. So that's how we ended up in Chicago. Wow. Well, from the monastery website, I see that you now have a community of about 10 monks, Mm -hmm. and that you yourself joined the group in about 2000, and you were ordained a priest in 2004. Tell us a little bit about who the monks are and how they joined the monastery and how how you got there. Sure. Yeah. Well, I went to college in Chicago. and uh, Oh, really? Where'd you go? The University of Chicago. Oh, good for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so not too far from where the monastery is. And a friend of mine discovered it. And we went there for Sunday Mass for about a year. And then um, I was kind of putting off entering at that time. But I was very attracted by the liturgy. I think most of the men who enter... Uh, are attracted by the liturgy, by a life of silence dedicated to prayer. Uh, right now, we range in age from 25 to 67, so uh, it's a good good range of ages and backgrounds. We, we're all Americans, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, we've got guys from various states. You know, uh, About three or four of us are from the Chicago area, and the rest are from Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, etc., so it's only been about 16 years then, the monastery, a little more, 25, when was 20, 25, 25 years, 25 years yep. 26 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yep. Well, uh, I note that the founding of this monastery was intentionally linked with urban evangelization. Tell me a little bit about that. How does a group of enclosed monks do evangelization in modern-day urban Chicago? Sure, yeah. Well, our founders began as missionaries, actually, so that's why we, we've always had that uh, evangelizing aspect. 
Uh, Where were they missionaries? They were missionaries in Haiti and Brazil. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, what they found was that uh, the mission work was difficult if there wasn't a, a community and if there wasn't a good, strong liturgy. And so when they started putting that together, they asked for permission to look at a different form of religious life, and they ended up entering monastic life. So our doors are open all the time, and we invite people to join us for the liturgy, to come on retreat. We also just offer the example of uh, communal charity, uh, brothers living together, sharing all things in common, wearing the habit, um, praising God, praying all the time, uh, and uh, hopefully being in the city is a place where people can see us, you know, and uh, we can, as I said, engage when we're not uh, withdrawn in prayer. Well, they used to have uh, on Saturdays a mass at eleven o'clock, okay. Mm-hmm. But now I think it's like at the crack of dawn or something. It like is uh, <laughs> six, six thirty-five. Usually yeah, say. yeah. So, boy, yeah. I mean, that, that kind of holds down the attendance. I would take a little bit. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Sunday mass is at ten, uh, but then you know most people are at their parishes. So, okay. Well, you know, Saint Benedict's famous motto was mm-hmm. "Ora et labora," pray and work. There, uh, you know, other than. Uh, uh, U.S. Cellular Field, I mean, there's no fields to plow in Bridgeport on 31st Street. It's all urban and industrial. What is the work? What is the physical work which you and your monks do at this monastery? Sure. Well, uh, we, because we're a cloistered community, we have all of this, the regular work of keeping up the buildings, uh, cleaning, cooking, that kind of stuff. We're also, uh, we've got a guest house for retreatants. We also run a bed and breakfast for tourists, for business travelers. So we've got a lot of cleaning to do, a lot of meals to prepare for people. Uh, we do have a garden. It's almost a whole city plot. Really? Not, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. So uh, there, there's plenty of work to do with our hands, that's for sure. But, yeah, we don't have uh, cattle or anything like that. Well, yeah, there seems to be a, kind of a Byzantine aspect a little bit to, mm-hmm. to your monastery. You know, so you have icons in there and uh, – uh, uh, there's some some of the the music the, the times I've gone it, it, there's been a kind of a Byzantine uh, tinge to it. Tell me a little bit about that. That seems to be an intentional part yes. of the charism of the, this particular monastery. Sure. Yeah, I'd give two related answers. One is that just the monastic charism goes way back before the split between the East and West churches, and so our life is very close to the monastic life that you find in the Orthodox churches. Uh, but um, more. Immediately, uh, we were originally, before we became Benedictines, we were connected to the community of Jerusalem, which was uh, a kind of a new monastic form of life in Paris. And, I, I think uh, they have Mont Saint-Michel now. They right? do, yes. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And uh, so uh, part of their outreach, ecumenical outreach, was to use uh, particularly Russian-style music. And so uh-huh. we've always had that as part of our, part of the musical uh, tone, I guess, of our, our worship. So, um, and it just happens then that our iconographer is Russian as well. So we have oh, okay. uh, a lot of those elements. Well, now, do do people come and like, the, like yeah, seek spiritual direction there, or like how do you have like a, a retreat schedule that people sign up for in advance? I mean, how does it all? How does the apostle there work? Sure, the retreats are mostly self directed, which or I, we just open up our house they, so that people can join us for the office and for meals and so on. Spiritual direction right now, we pretty much limit to meeting with uh, priests of the archdiocese mm-hmm. just as a way of supporting the local church and just because of the limits on our time. Uh, but when people come on retreat, if they want to speak to one of the priests, that's always a possibility. Just uh, So uh, that that does happen pretty frequently. Well, you had you were kind of pretty much of a rocket docket here. I mean, uh, 
you uh, uh, th- what did you major in over at the uh, University of Chicago? Music. Oh, you're a music major. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Any particular area in music? Or? Uh, mostly music theory and composition. I wanted to be a composer. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so then all of a sudden you, you graduate from there, and then the next thing you know, uh, first. You're uh, you're a monk uh, at in 2000, and 2004 you're the prior yeah, <laughs> and yeah, a priest. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really a fast uh, uh, ascent. I mean, mm-hmm. how uh, what are the, how did it come about? I mean, what was it that uh, attracted you to this uh, countercultural really way of life? Well, I think you put your finger right on it. Um, part of the reason I went into music was uh, to be something of a fringe artist. You know, uh, to raise questions about uh, certain aspects of our culture that just seem to me to make people unhappy. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the monastic life actually was something of a fulfillment of that aspiration I had to to seek after the truth in in the most intentional way possible. Uh, But, you know, growing up, I I grew up Catholic, but I really, I, I didn't, and even know there were monks still around mm. until I got to college and wow. uh, studied music history. <laughs> uh, that was my introduction to Gregorian chant, really. You know, so well, you know, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, one of the beauties of uh, Bene- the uh, Benedictine life and, and monastic life in general is the understanding of the beauty and virtue of silence. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to hear that still small voice that mm-hmm. spoke to Elijah that speaks to us, if. We don't crowd it out with all kinds of other things. And, and the, uh, this sense of contemplation, I mean, to be a, be aware, the way I call it, a 360-degree awareness, not in a circle but in a sphere. So we're aware both up and down and round and round, okay, so that a person can be open to the insights that come only if your heart is open and if you have a certain interior silence. And I think that's, uh, you know, St. Benedict you know, talked about that uh, quite a bit. Both St. Benedict, St. Benedict of of Nursia and St. Benedict of Anyan. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you pronounce the second oh, that's one? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Anyan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both talked about that need for that silence. And I, I'm glad you're able to cultivate it. Well, do you have, you have, okay, monastic news, do you have any publications that you put out? Because this is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think you're onto something here, Father. Yeah, well, we have a print newsletter that comes out four times a year. Uh, our website is chicagomonk.org, and uh, you can find out all kinds of stuff about our life there. Uh, so that, those are our main outreaches. Great. Well, you know, the pastor of our parish, Father Mike McGovern, spent a retreat at your monastery. He was very impressed with the insights he received on prayer there. We will have to have you back in the future to expand on prayer. But briefly, in the minute that remains to us, tell the listeners a little bit about how prayer, both oral and mental, together with work, interrelated the monastery of the Holy Cross. Sure. Uh, well, I think the key thing to remember is that we as human beings are made for union with God. We're made to have a relationship with him. And God is present everywhere. So uh, there, there's nothing that we, we see in our lives. There's nothing that we do in our lives where, where God is absent in some way. And all we need to do is, is uh, sort of get ourselves out of the way so that we realize God's presence in all things. And then prayer is just a natural expression of everything we do. That's great. Well, thanks very much, Father Peter. We're going to have to have you back real soon sure. to talk in more detail about prayer for modern people engaged in busy lives. Thank you. And, folks, stay tuned for our next segment. We're going to talk to someone who totally left the urban world for a while, devoted years of his life to missionary work in Africa. He brought his whole family with him. What was it like? Stay tuned and find out. We'll be right back. Father Pat McGrath, the president of Loyola Academy. This year of mercy 
the kids have led by asking good questions about well, what does that look like for us to try to, in this year in particular and in the days to come, to integrate that mercy more deeply into who we are. Of course, they've also tried to use it frequently as a trump card for detention or things like that. Like, well, Father, isn't it the year of mercy? You know, shouldn't there be this general amnesty declared? This is the Jubilee Year of Mercy. This is Relevant Radio. This is the Jubilee Year of Mercy. Father Steve Gruno. The same word of Jesus that affects the transformation of the bread and wine into his body and blood is the same word that transforms our souls in the sacrament of penance. You're meeting Jesus in the sacrament of penance. That's what's happening. The same word that he spoke Go in peace, your sins are forgiven in the Gospels is the same word that's spoken to you. The sacrament of penance is in its essential nature an encounter with the Lord Jesus. We shouldn't stay away from him. The holy door of mercy that will be opened for everyone this year is the door to the confessional. Learn more about the Jubilee Year of Mercy at RelevantRadio.com, keyword Jubilee. Our app has been reconfigured. It gets better and better. The all-new Relevant Radio app 3.0. One of the things, and you heard Father Rocky talk about it the other day, is uh, the Sermon on the App. The Relevant Radio 3.0 app is out. I was like a kid at Christmas time, and I turned on my iPhone and there was the new Relevant Radio 3.0 app. It is unbelievable what's on there. Check your smart device. And if the Relevant Radio app didn't update automatically, be sure to download version 3.0 today. All right, if you haven't, don't recognize it. That's good African music. Africa has always been a continent of mystery for the West. The source of a million adventure stories and movies involving life and death challenges and mysterious treasures. Actually, a new film on Tarzan is about to come out, proving the point. Well, the real Africa contains a lot of treasure. And we are increasingly seeing the nature of that treasure. I think the biggest treasure of all is the tremendous growth of the Christian faith in sub-Saharan Africa. I have in the program today someone who's been there who's lived in Africa recently for a number of years, Mr. Peter Newburn. Peter went with his family to Africa to serve that growing church there. Among other things, he worked on Catholic radio. So I'm sure he knows far more about radio than I do. Hey, it's great to have you here, Peter. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Dan. I love your show. I love your lively presentation and your insightful commentary. It's great to be here. Well, good. There's a little African in all of us, even to me. (laughs) Thank you. Well, Peter, to us urbanites here. Well, you and your family did really sounds like high adventure. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Africa. Well, I've been working in full-time ministry as a layperson for 30-plus years. And I was working in the Diocese of San Bernardino, California, as a parish administrator, pastoral life coordinator. And uh, I was coming to the end of my term. I was appointed by the bishop to oversee the parish and Uh, It was a nine-year term, and I was coming to the end of it. My wife and I had talked about missionary service, uh, but not very seriously. And then we found out about this organization called Lay Mission Helpers that sends lay people and families on mission. Mm. And so we went through a discernment process with them and a four-month formation process. 
and they sent uh, all of us to Cameroon. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about Cameroon. I, I put the map of the country on my Facebook page. It's right smack dab, folks, in Central Africa, where the continent suddenly takes a southern turn near the equator. There's that hump of Africa that sticks out, and this is right where you go all around the hump, and you go back down again. It's got Nigeria on the west side, Chad, the Central African Republic, on its east side, and it's just north of the Congo uh, on the Atlantic Ocean. What is it like there? Well, Africa traditionally has a lot of different tribes, villages. In Cameroon, there's over 250 languages spoken. Wow. Just various tribes, various villages. Uh, the church is young there. Uh, when, I, when we got there in 2012, they were preparing to celebrate the centenary 100 years of Christianity wow. in that area. Uh, and uh, it was very exciting. But I would say the church is very well established there, Dan. It's the, the, the people are alive with faith. Christianity is quite prevalent. Uh, but there's also a culture, a tradition of traditional African religion, they call it. And uh, there's a lot of, I would say, I mean, you could call it superstition, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of African so tradition, yeah. uh, ancestor, ancestor worship, worship. Uh, animism. Yes, and uh, a lot of curses kind of go in uh -oh. with that if you... Which doctors? Yes, uh -huh. it, and and we, you know, we we think that's we think of the movies when we hear yeah, which oh, doctors. Definitely, but <laughs> but it's a very real thing there, uh -huh. and a lot of practicing Catholics will will try to cover their uh, their bets by going to the priest, but also going to the traditional wow. healer, and so it's a challenge to really evangelize fully the culture that's there. Well, you know, according to the encyclopedia, when the country became independent in 1960, it had, at that time, 4 million people, of whom about a third were Christians. What's it been like in the last 50 years? How has it grown? How has it changed? Well, the, the church has really grown a lot, and through good leadership and good, uh, you know, originally it was the missionaries who came and, and gave the faith, and there's a lot of love and respect for missionaries. When I went as a missionary, I wasn't sure what to expect, but people really appreciated the witness and the presence uh, of missionaries, of people who come to them. And in fact, I, I wanted to say this, uh, I worked with African priests in California, and one in particular, I asked him, all the sacrifices you've made to come here, to give up your culture, your family, the foods you like, it's a huge sacrifice. How How is it that you're able to do that? And he said... The missionaries brought the faith to us. How could I not be willing wow. to be a missionary where the Lord calls me? Well, what what is the percentage of the population that's Catholic now uh, or Christian now? In, I would in, say about a third. Still about a third. Third okay. Christian, third uh, maybe and, Islam, uh -huh. and a third traditional religion. Okay. Now, where were you based, and what did you do in Cameroon? Cameroon is bilingual, officially. It's French-speaking and English-speaking. We were in the English-speaking part, the so you were like in the northwest part? Yes. Okay. Yes. It used to be British Cameroons, they used to call That's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in 1962, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they kind of merged them together and gained independence. But they speak both languages throughout the entire country? Well, they say Cameroon is a bilingual country, but Cameroonians are not bilingual. So pretty much if you're whichever section you're in, that's what they speak. Okay. And, of course, everybody speaks their own tribal language, at least one. Well, well, you know, before World War I, it was actually a German colony. Is there any residue of German influence there at all? 
Yes, uh, the Germans did a lot of good work there in terms of construction and all of that. But World War One, the Germans were all kicked out of the country, and the British and French came in, right. and so that's the predominant influence now. What kind of things did you do for the church in Cameroon? What was what was your work there? Well, I have a Doctor of Ministry degree, and so the Archbishop asked me to teach at the seminary. So, oh, really? Yes, I taught theology at the major seminary. I taught the the church fathers. And oh, you I taught, taught patristics? Yes, oh, patristics. That's, that's and, my favorite. Yes, yes. <laughs> and history, church history. And I love teaching that because it's, as you know, it's yeah. just so insightful so much, for our own yeah. faith. It, it helped me really appreciate the tradition and the richness of our faith. So I was the very first layperson to teach theology at the seminary. Wow. Uh, so in addition to being a white man, an American, I was a layperson and... Uh, the the students were very responsive, really appreciative of the style and the insights and the uh, the witness that I brought. Which city were you based in? Bamenda. Bamenda, okay, which is in the northwest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now, our choices all end up turning us into the people we turn out to be. Looking back on it, what do you find was the greatest contribution which Cameroon made to you? How did it affect you in the way you are living the rest of your life? You came to bring something, but I'm sure you received a lot, too. That is definitely true, and that's a great question. And what I tell people is that I think going to Africa was the best thing we could have done for our kids. Really? Our kids were 10, 8, and 6 when we went. Uh, And so we were there for three years. Those are very formative years for our kids, and it was a great experience for them. To, we, we used to say, rather than focus on what we don't have, let's be grateful for what we do have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the secret to happiness. You know, being happy, content in life is, is being grateful. And uh, I think that helped cultivate that in our kids. Also definitely opened all of us up to a broader perspective of church and the body of Christ, which is very enriching. Well, there, there's a priest friend of mine that lived in Chicago for many years and then uh, uh, volunteered for work uh, uh, in Africa. I forget exactly where it was. I think it might have been in East Africa. I think it might have gone to Kenya, but I'm not sure. But in any event, he, he was a totally Western guy. I think he was originally from Spain, he, so he had nothing to do with Africa at all. But he lived the last years of his life in Africa, and he said it changed his whole life. He said, you know, he, he, he got to appreciate things, just as you said, so much more. Just the, the true joy of life, you know, uh, the Africans uh, helped teach him that, not to, not to sweat the small stuff, you know, That's like right. to, and to appreciate the big stuff, you know, which is really, you know, all around us. My, myself, I have a, have a great love for African Christians. Uh, the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, is not just a theoretical proposition for the Africans that I know. Uh, Christ to them is a personal reality, and he commands their hearts. I'm becoming better friends all the time with an African priest now stationed in Chicago. What do you see as the emerging African contribution to global Catholicism? Well, I think that there is a, a richness of faith and uh, fidelity to the tradition. Um, and I think... Just having Africans and priests serving our church in the USA from other cultures helps uh, helps expand our view to see the the bigger reality of church and that and that and that we should be missionary minded. You know, not all of us can go to Africa like I did to be a missionary, but all of us are called to be missionaries in our own way, and uh, those coming to us are an example of that. 
and we're called. As that priest I was talking about, he had an experience of his own that motivated him. You know, really, that's true for all of us, isn't it? When we have our own conversion, our own whatever awakens us in our faith, we want to share it with others. And that's what we're called to do here, there, or everywhere. I agree. There's a freshness that this new church in Africa has. They see the faith with fresh eyes. They, they, they realize the beauty, the, 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 the awesomeness of the, of the Christian mystery, and I think they, they've got a lot to teach us there. Hey, well, that's all for right now, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk about Father Emil Capon, a hero who lights up our way, an amazing priest, an amazing man. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. When the apostles saw Jesus walking on water, they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. Peter blurted out, If it's you, tell me to come to you. On one hand, he was looking for a miracle. But I think Peter also was looking for something else to prove that it was the Lord. There was something about Jesus' words that may have been unlike any other voice in Peter's life. You see, Peter didn't just believe in Jesus. Jesus believed in him. At his first encounter with Jesus, Peter said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And he heard the unthinkable. Come follow me, you'll be a fisher of men. In other words, I see more in you than you see in yourself, Peter. So when he heard, Come, walk on the water, Peter knew who it was. Jesus is the voice that wants to empower you and build you up. Do yourself a favor and stop listening to that critical voice in your head that keeps ripping you down. It's not God. This is Chris Stefanik. For more, visit relevantradio.com, keyword, real-life Catholic. Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput. All of them were bumping into Jesus, but it was only one of them who actually touched Jesus in a way that he felt his healing power coming out of him. And the reason he experienced her differently than those who bumped into him is because she was a woman of faith. We spend more time bumping into Jesus than in touching him. Sometimes when we receive him in Holy Communion, it's more like bumping into him than actually allowing him to touch us. When we say our prayers, and we really don't pray very much at all, but we're distracted, we have to become women and men of faith who actually are aware of Jesus when we come in contact with him. And when that happens, when we become men and women of faith, the same thing happens to us as happened to her. He touches us and he says to us, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. Giving voice to our shepherds. Talk radio for Catholic life. Relevant radio. May I say two little comments from emails that I received after last week's show? Please, Sister Bridget Hess. They both love your show. The first one was from a chef in New Jersey. He said that Relevant Radio has brought him closer to Jesus. A simple email, but really filled with gratitude. And the second was from a lady who said that after she would bring her children to school, she was in such a depressed state that she would go back home, draw her curtains, and she would just listen to Relevant Radio. And she said that has brought her back to the light of Christ. So I think if Father Rocky ever wants a theme song for Relevant Radio, I think it should be just a closer walk with thee. <laughs> Let me walk close to thee. Morning Air, weekday mornings at 7 Eastern, 6 Central on Relevant Radio. 
I've always believed that the Lord likes to have you spend some relaxing time with Him. I'm Paul Sadek, and every weekday evening on Evensong on Relevant Radio, we wind down with evening prayer, a full chapter of the New Testament, and some music. It's right before the rosary. Evensong, Monday through Friday evenings at 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central, on Relevant Radio and on the Relevant Radio app. What does God want me to learn or know today? Now that gives us more of a purpose too throughout every day. Relevant Radio contributor, therapist Leo Bettenhausen. You know, what is God trying to teach me today? And if we wake ourselves up in the morning with that question on our minds, you know, we can have a lot better of a day every day. Then pay attention because God will teach us something if we are open to it and asking Him, you know, to show me what you need me to know today, Lord. Talk radio for Catholic life. Relevant Radio. You haven't guessed it. That's the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and I don't think a more rousing patriotic song has ever been written. And there's a lot to the song if you listen to the words. We're going to talk about somebody who really exemplified the words of that song, and he was a Catholic priest and a hero who lights up our way. Father Emil Capon, his name is pronounced differently depending on who you talk to, but I guess the family says that the proper way to pronounce it is the Bohemian way, which is what he was, Father Emil Capon. This is a priest who was awarded a couple of years ago posthumously the Congressional Medal of Honor given by none other than President Obama himself. Now, he's up for a bigger medal than that. His cause for canonization is introduced and is going through the process in Rome right now, and there's a number of miracles reported to his intercession. And let's hear about how he got to this point. Father Capon was born in a small farm town in Kansas called, appropriately, Pilsen, Kansas. Okay, Pilsen, because a lot of the people that had emigrated there were from uh, uh, the Czech, what's now the Czech Republic, from Bohemia. He grew up on a, on a small farm. It was uh, various times between 80 and 160 acres. And there, he, uh, he was just a normal kid. He was born in uh, 1916. He had an older brother. He had a younger brother. They... Uh, did work on the farm, and you know, on the farm you learn how to be a jack of all trades. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to know to keep that uh, the, the maintenance of the farm uh, going, and he, he learned it all. He was early marked by a love for daily mass. Okay, he went to school in town, and he'd come an hour earlier so that he could go to mass. He he always was very much uh, uh, enthralled with uh, with with the mystery of the mass and, and 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 what it meant. He realized the vocation to the priesthood, and he. Uh, was ordained a priest for the uh, Diocese of Wichita in 1940. And after doing some you know, priestly work in his own uh, uh, bailiwick in, in, in uh, the, uh, the uh, environment of Wichita, Kansas, he, he volunteered for the Army Chaplain Corps in 1944. He did overseas service in India and Burma, and he covered, he, he was, what was really noticed about him was his indefatigability. I mean, his farmers can be tough. And he was tough. Okay, he would ride all over the place. Wherever the people needed the sacraments, he was covered thousands of miles during the couple of years that he was there. He was discharged, uh, you know, uh, in 1946 with the uh, uh, you know, disarmament of, uh, of, of uh, uh, the demobilization of the troops. But he uh, really liked he, his vocation as a military chaplain, and he re-enlisted in 1948. And he had more overseas service in places even including Japan. 
Well, what happened two years later was the war in Korea. You know, the communists streamed over the uh, the parallel and, and uh, wanted to take over uh, South Korea. And the United Nations intervened. And with and he was there within the first month of American troops, uh, you know, coming in with the other United Nations troops into Korea to uh, stop the, uh, the the invasion from the north. He was in the Pusan perimeter where my dad also served. It was tough. I mean, there was they were down to a, just a small little enclave of land. But when the Americans got there, they they pushed and they uh, they turned the tide. I mean, they got all the way within miles of the uh, uh, chi- red Chinese border. And Father Capon uh, got a bunch of medals. Okay, within the, a couple of months of being there, got the Bronze Star. Okay, how did he get the Bronze Star? Rescuing wounded men under fire. Okay. Guy, he, he had that kind of the spirit of, uh, uh, of you know, the Marines never leave a guy uh, uh, alone, even though he was in uh, in the Army, but he had this kind of Marine Corps spirit. He wasn't going to leave the men to be captured by the Reds. He would, under great fire, I mean, come and uh, pull men out of the drink and bring them back to safety. He did that uh, uh, so often that he got the Bronze Star for it. He also got the Distinguished Service Cross. Well, he was with a group uh, of uh, troops, the cavalry, they got up to the uh, uh, Yellow River, the Chinese border, when suddenly they were surrounded by th- tens of thousands of Chinese troops that had vo- so-called volunteers that now intervened to turn the tide back uh, in the direction of the communists. And they were just the men were completely overwhelmed. I mean, they, they it was sort of like a, a little bighorn situation, a small group of men facing you know, tens of thousands that they didn't know were there. He was captured. He escaped, uh, and then he came back to get the, to uh, do this help the wounded thing again. And uh, uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, he got captured again. Okay, by uh, uh, by doing that. But while when that happened, uh, an amazing thing uh, that uh, people never forgot uh, occurred. Uh, one of the men in his uh, in his. Uh, squad that he one of the men in the platoon that he didn't really know a guy named herbert miller uh had been wounded he had been hit by a uh a uh, shrapnel from a from a hand grenade he couldn't walk and uh there was a uh uh, chinese uh soldier standing in front of him with a a rifle pointed at his head he was just about to pull uh the trigger to put him out of his misery capon walks up to him uh pushes the uh the muzzle of the of the gun the rifle out of the way picks the guy up and puts him on his own back. The Chinese guy is stunned, okay? And Miller, uh, you know, thought his life was done, okay? But Capone carried him, and they had one of these death marches. They called it the Tiger Death March. They had to march 80 miles to a prison camp, a horrible prison camp called Piak Tong, okay? And it was cold. It was November. They were frostbite. They were dressed for the summer. They they, they thought the war was almost over. They didn't know the Chinese were going to intervene. And they're in a they're in a prison camp, and it's rough. The men don't have equipment. The men don't have coats. They're dying like flies. Okay, and so what he does is he uses that farming ingenuity. He he takes his watch and he trades it for blankets. Okay, and uh, he gives the 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 Chinese his watch. They give him blankets as, as an exchange. He doesn't take the blanket for himself. He uses his farming know how. He makes socks. 
so that people can save their feet, save their toes. He knits it himself. He makes pots and pans out of scrap metal that's lying around so he can wash the clothes and wash the people that are there. And he did even more. They called him the good thief because what he would do is he'd sneak out of the compound at night to try to steal food because they didn't give him much food. They gave him a handful of stuff that looked like birdseed, and that's all that they had. He was uncannily successful. He said, I'm going, pray to St. Dismas for me, boys. I'm going. I'm trying to get us some food. And, you know, in the middle of all of this, I mean, he's keeping the morale going for uh, for the troops. He's given spiritual direction. He's fighting the propaganda. You know, they got propaganda sessions that they're supposed to have. And, uh, and he's telling them, and look, at it. the time is going to come for all of us where we're going to stand up for our faith. We're either going to do it or we're not going to do it. But let's be the ones that do it. And he was tremendously uh, 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 effective, hated by the Reds, but loved by his men. Uh one of the soldiers who was a Jewish guy, decided to make a wooden crucifix, carved it himself, so that Father Capuan could have a focal point, you know, when he's leading prayer services and stuff, uh, which he did. He led prayer services, even Easter services, and he always told people, keep God inside you. Don't believe what they're telling you. You know, we know what the truth is. We're going to stay with that truth. Well, ultimately, he gets sick himself. He gets a blood clot on his leg. He gets dysentery. He gets pneumonia. And uh, the men tried to hide him because to go to what the, the Reds called the hospital was a was really more like the black hole of Calcutta. I mean, it was a place where you go to die. They don't give you any food there. You're just there to die. You're covered with vermin, and you never come out. You never come out alive. Well, the the uh, the communists found out that uh, they they were glad that he was getting out of commission. They were going to take him away to the hospital, and they did, and he died there. Uh, the men, the men were, uh, you know, all upset, you know, uh, when, when they were taken away. And some of them, you know, visibly, you know, broke down in tears because they said, you know, we just lost the best friend that we ever had. Uh, as soon after the war was over and all, uh, most of the prisoners, the prisoners that were in that particular camp were freed two and a half years later, uh, there were immediate calls made. Uh, for medals for Father Capon, for, for what he did as, by way of self-sacrificing for everyone else. Uh, one of the things that they, they described Father Capon was that he was all man and all priest. And uh, a priest for everyone, you know, a Catholic, Protestant, Jew, atheist, whoever it was, had a friend in Father Capon. He took seriously the vocation of the priesthood. You know, in the old rite, they used to say, when they would ordain you as a priest, imitate Quadratus, imitate what you hand on, imitate what you handle, okay? And that, the body and blood of Christ, a man for others, a man who provides sustenance, provides life for everyone else, is what a priest is supposed to do. It's what Father Capon took seriously and what Father Capon did. And he continued doing that after after his death. Uh, they uh, rec- Requests were made for uh, medals of honor, okay? It was... The Korea, in many respects, is a forgotten war. It wasn't paid attention to a lot. But finally, the men never gave up knowing what Father Capuan meant to him. And he finally got that Congressional Medal of Honor in April of the 2013. But meanwhile, miracles were reported through his intercession. One, a guy named uh, uh, Chase Keene, okay, was involved in a pole vaulting accident. He goes over a pole, uh, a high school uh, thing. He smashes his head. They, you know, they, they pronounced him that his head looked like it was flattened, like a, like a bowling ball that somebody had smashed in. They prayed to Father Capuan. 
The guy recovered. It's just, it's a miracle. They, can't, they they couldn't understand how this happened. The guy's still alive to this day. He's testified before the Vatican Tribunal about uh, the uh, miracle of Father Capone. Another guy, uh, Nick Delasega, okay, uh, collapses at uh, a, a running. They pray to Father Capone, and he comes to also. I mean, uh, this is a man who made, did great things by his willingness to serve. Father Emil Capon, a priest who was a man, all man and all priest, what an example for all of us as Catholics, somebody we can follow, truly a hero who lights up lights up our way. Father Emil Capon, pray for us all. May we imitate your courage and your service and your spirit, your lion's heart of generosity. Father Emil Capon, pray for us. Backed by your prayers and your generosity, this is listener-supported Relevant Radio. Through Relevant Radio, I came back to the church. I made my first confession in quite a while. It had such an effect that my mother has noticed a change and has been asking to learn more about the Catholic faith and has been listening to Relevant Radio and now has asked to go to Mass with me. Relevant Radio has had an enormous impact on my life. Listener-supported Relevant Radio. You know, it really provides me a lot of support in my vocation as a mom because I'm a young mom. I'm only 25. I don't have a peer group of other young moms. To have the support in my faith and in that vocation, is it's amazing for me. It's really important. Our need is ongoing. Please call now with your tax-deductible donation. 1-877-291-0123. 1-877-291-0123 or donate online at relevantradio.com This week on Christopher Close-Up we'll be featuring a story about a young man who suffered terribly during the long famine in North Korea until he escaped to China and found his way to America with the help of Christian activists. Author Joseph Kim will join me to discuss his Christopher award-winning memoir Under the Same Sky. Join me, Tony Rossi, this Sunday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 3.30 p.m. Central for Christopher Close-Up right here on Relevant Radio. The power of the gospel when presented with beauty and with smarts. Relevant Radio contributor, Monsignor James Shea. The power of the gospel when it's presented in that way in which Christ and the apostles and the saints through the ages have presented the faith it still has this perennial power, this great potency to light up lives, to transform, to heal, and to strengthen. Keeping you energized to evangelize. Talk radio for Catholic life. Relevant radio. We finally fall apart and we break each other's hearts if we want to Hello everyone, this is Dan Sheely and that's the music from a new film, Me Before You. It's got a lot of publicity, it's got a lot of notoriety, it's got some... Uh, tremendous English actors in it. Uh, they always do a good job. But it's a film with a rather controversial message. And one of it, uh, in large part, uh, I'm not, I don't like, quite frankly. But let's talk about it. Tom, you saw the movie. What You saw it this week. Uh, why don't you give a little summary of what the movie's all about? Sure. We're talking about the movie Me Before You. And the basic plot of this movie is a young 20-something British girl who's not very bright, not very talented, not very skilled, but has a wonderful personality, a very giving and generous heart, 
um, is out of a job and she's looking for a job. She needs a job to support not only herself, but her family who are also um, kind of down and out um, and running out of money. And she gets an opportunity to be a caretaker for a young 20 something rich, formerly successful quadriplegic man um, who is struggling with um, his uh, physical challenges and uh, they become an unlikely pairing and uh, the story kind of goes from there as they learn from each other. Well, I know you're afraid to give the spoiler, but I, I'm going to give the spoiler right out, okay? Because the, the movie probes the question of euthanasia, you know? And I yeah. think that's what makes it uh, uh, both uh, uh, infuriating, okay, and also uh, very uh, powerful, okay? Because we, we, the story deals with life and death issues. And uh, the problem is that it deals uh, – well, here's the thing. Let me, again, put my cards right on the table. When I, uh, in this job for this radio show, I go to the movies every week, as you listeners know, okay? And so I see a lot of trailers, okay? And I saw the trailers for this film, and I could see it coming. I could I could see what was going to happen, okay? It was going to be a film that was going to probe the question of euthanasia, so-called mercy killing. And I didn't want to go see it, quite frankly. Tommy convinced me to go see it because he said it's an important movie. We, we, we better go see it. And I was ready, I was screwing up my uh, uh, stomach, I mean, to, to, to go see it, to, to, have, uh, to, uh, uh, to take it. Uh, and I turned out, I was pleasantly surprised to this extent. Okay, the movie, and we'll talk about this further, does present, uh, in the end, a, uh, a, a decision for euthanasia, a decision for a guy to, kill, to uh, commit a... Uh, a suicide to uh, get out of his condition, which is uh, 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 painful for him. But uh, it, it does also, and this is the reason why I was pleasantly surprised, present what I want to call our arguments. Okay. It presents the Christian arguments, the reasons why not to commit suicide in rather positive terms. Okay. He doesn't, he's not convinced by our people. He's not the, the girl that Tommy was describing does not want him to commit suicide, uh, but uh, and she has some good arguments, as does her mother. And by the way, her mother is distinctly of Latino background. She's, pro you know, like she, they're almost saying that she's a Catholic without saying that she's a Catholic. She's wearing a cross, and the family size that this girl comes from is bigger than a normal family uh, in England today, which is lucky. They're lucky if they have two kids over there, and they, they had about four. So it's uh, there's a kind of a Catholic undertone to it. And guess what? The Catholics represent the anti-euthanasia position. But it, ultimately, he decides for euthanasia, which I think is a humongous mistake. And it's also a mistake uh, to glamorize that for reasons we'll discuss uh, later. Tom, what did, what did you did you share the same um, uh, surprise at the positive role that the anti-euthanasia arguments got in the movie? Um, yes. Well, I was surprised by the movie in general. I also, like you, wasn't really looking forward I, to seeing the movie. I didn't think I would enjoy it at all. And I was surprised to find that I really did enjoy some aspects of it. 
um, in, especially the characters, um, the acting, and just the the chemistry and relationship between the two main characters I thought worked really, really well, better than most movies I've seen. And so that kind of hooked me into it. Um, but in terms of the messaging of the movie, um, yeah, decidedly pro-euthanasia, decidedly very kind of overt about it um, towards the end of the movie. It They set it up in the beginning for the first like 60% of the movie and then towards the end they're like really hitting you over the head with it basically saying like, well, he it's his right to choose to kill himself if he wants to. But they do give the other side a voice. Um, I would say they don't give that – the voice isn't told in a very, very convincing way, but it is given some weight. Um, and so I don't know if it was totally like an even-sided display of the arguments, um, but it wasn't just totally like throwing the – Christian and Catholic viewpoint, like under the bus. Well, you know, like I'm used to uh, getting force fed, you know, with the uh, uh, materialistic secular view, like the cider house rules, you know, type of thing, uh, whereby uh, the Christian position is presented only as a caricature. It was not presented only as a caricature here, which is uh, which I was happy to see. But and there's a big but, and I know that you share it. The movie, the solution, if you want to call it that, that they show is based on a, on a materialistic premise that's fallacious and wrong. Okay, the, the premise is that life is about my enjoyment. You know, and if you go with that, if you accept that premise, and so since this guy could not enjoy life anymore, okay, because he said in one of the scenes, I liked my life, I was a big shot, I was handsome, I had girls you know, ogling me, you know, when I was in Paris, I had the best clothes. I had, I had the finest wines. I could smell the beautiful perfume. And you know what? Again, the premise that he's talking about is that life was about his enjoyment and he couldn't do that anymore. So now he wanted out. Now, if someone, whatever condition they're in, whether they're healthy or sick, if someone goes with that premise, that person is guaranteed a miserable end, okay, because we all run out of our talents and our strength at some point. Everyone, whether or not they were involved in a car accident that made a, a paraplegic, we, we all lose it as we go along. And if we think of life as being just for me and for my enjoyment, we're going to be very disappointed and very miserable. That's not the proposition that's given to us by our faith. We're told that life is not about me. Life is about love. We're made for love, and we're made to love. The way Jesus described it, we're supposed to be fountains of living water. Now, contrary to this beautiful guy, okay, and he's a very handsome guy. He dresses, he's, he's, a, he's rich in the movie. He's got terrific clothes and everything else. Uh, so he, he's he's got a, a, a situation for someone with this disease as good as it can get. Okay, but uh, he says you know that now since he can't you know move anything other than his head, uh, you know he doesn't want to live anymore. Well, you know what? I've known personally two people personally who had that same condition. I know one guy whose name was Mr. Leonard. I, I knew I knew his children. He ran his family from his bedroom. I mean, he did not stop 
loving and leading his family, even though he had the disease. And basically all his kids became very significant human beings. One became a producer, film producer. One became uh, a nun. I mean, you know, he, he didn't give up the struggle to live life where he found it. Another one, Gail Meister, okay, a magnificent evangelical Christian who had an accident, very much like this guy's accident, lost the use of, of her legs for the rest of her life, had tremendous pain. Her husband ran out on her after that, but she also lived a tremendous life. She still was involved in business. She she was a tremendous example to her family, to everyone who knew her. She and Mr. Leonard had something that this guy didn't have. They had a bigger vision, okay? And so that vision included God and people and, you know, living for something other than oneself. And so if you keep blessing people through your life, you will be light to the world, no matter what your condition. And, of course, we, we talked about John Paul in the earlier segment. He showed that when he was out of gas I mean, he still was giving it all he had, and he still he made more of an impression on people when he was debilitated than when he was young and robust and strong. Tom, any parting shots? Well, I think that um, the movie surprisingly also, I think, portrays the message you're talking about as well. It's just not the message that wins out in the end. I think that the main character, um, Lou, uh, who's played by the actress Amelia Clark. She is the person who lives for love, and she loves this quadriplegic man, and it's her love that really breaks him out of his cynicism, and his uh, he learns to enjoy life again, um, and she enjoys her life more by loving him. And so you do see that, even though it seems like the, the end of the movie, connect. it seems like they kind of conclude almost like falsely and unearnedly that that is not the necessarily best way to live life but yet the movie shows it very positively so it's it's a weird kind of contradictory movie where that because it's contradictory that's what redeems it to a certain degree in my view uh the old days they used to have these ratings they, if a movie was totally horrible it would be condemned okay then there was another category morally objectionable in part for all that's what i would call this movie on a scale of one through five i give it a two what do you give it tom i give it a two and a half all right well that's it folks Stay tuned. We'll come in next week, and we're going to talk about more things from about love, life, and culture, always from a Roman perspective. And so until that time, ciao, bellissimi. That's the show for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the brightest show on air, The Dan Cheely Show. Show.